And good evening to everyone. If we can get everybody in, we'll close those doors and get started. Welcome to session number seven. And I appreciate all of you hanging with us through seven sessions. And we've got 10 total that we plan to do this semester. And uh, let's begin in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that allows us to understand your word. We thank you, Lord, for the church that you sent your word to redeem. So, Lord, I pray tonight that you would give us um, the ability to understand the scriptures. You would open our minds. It is a supernatural thing when you reveal yourself to us. And I ask that you would do that tonight and that you would be glorified and your church would be made stronger and better equipped for whatever is coming for us. And so we can prepare those who don't know you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure you've noticed by now that I have framed every session with the same scripture. But I've also tried to do something inside of that same scripture, this touch on a different point inside of that that speaks very heavily to me. So Jesus, at the end of his Olivet Discourse, when he finishes uh, describing the events that will precede his second coming, he says this, verse 33, heaven and earth will disappear. But my words will never disappear. Watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. For that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you'd be strong enough to escape these coming horrors. And stand before, and here comes the point, stand before the Son of Man. Do you know where that phrase comes from? I can guarantee the Jews knew what that meant for them. That the Son of Man, why did he call himself the Son of Man? Where does it come from? So it's not in your notes. Um, if you want to write yourself a note, it's Daniel 7, verse 9 through 14. And I want to read it to you. Because pray that you can stand before the Son of Man. Well, the Jewish people obviously knew the book of Daniel. It's about 500 years before Christ. And Daniel has this vision of the Son of Man. Now listen carefully. Verse 9, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel said, I watched as thrones were put in place. And the ancient one sat down to judge. This is the heavenly assembly. And God the Father is the ancient one. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire. And a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. And then the court began its session. He is called the court into session. And the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. That's the Antichrist. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. <clears throat> the other three beasts had their authority taken away from them, but they were allowed to live a little longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone, here it comes, as my vision continued, what God has assembled this court. As my vision continued that, continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
Daniel sees, this is, um, he's seeing the future. I see the Son of Man coming in the clouds uh, of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So it is the Son, Jesus, approaching the Father, the Ancient of Days. Verse 14, he was given, the Son, the Son of Man, was given authority honor and sovereignty over all the nations so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. That's 500 years before Christ. The Son of Man is revealed, 500 years B.C. So when you say, pray that you'd be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man, that's who he is. Last week, we finished with the seventh trumpet, announcing the coming of the kingdom of Christ. And John was looking into heaven, and he saw the ark of God. That's where we finished up last week. Tonight, we're going to do something. We're going to go back and pick up chapters 10 and 11. And I mentioned this last week. I wonder how many of you noticed that in, that, in those seven trumpets, we skip two chapters in Revelation. It just jumps over them. So tonight, we're going to go back and pick up chapters 10 and 11 and cover what this gap between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. There's a gap. Um, we like to call it a pause. Uh, some smart people call it a parenthetical pause, like a parenthesis, and it pauses while the scene, it, it, you get some information before the next scene. So there's the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, and we covered both of those last week. And then the middle is a parenthesis, and it's two chapters, chapters 10 and 11. So we're, gonna, we're not going to skip them. We're going to go and read them. The Apostle John sees another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now, you got to get this. This is between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. He sees another. Well, there's already seven angels, right, carrying seven trumpets. Now he sees another mighty angel coming. And it's Revelation 10, verse 14. Um, I need to tell you one thing before I read it. The Paul's is between six and seven, sixth uh, trumpet and the seventh trumpet. The sixth trumpet is the four angels who are at the Euphrates River who are released to execute a third of the earth's population. So there's the sixth angel, okay? Ooh. And the seventh angel what comes and announces the coming kingdom of Christ. So between these two events, the, the destruction of a third of the earth's population by the four angels at the river Euphrates and the announcement that the king has been announced. Okay, you have this. Verse 1, Revelation 10, verse 1. And then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. 
And he gave a great shout like a roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write what the seven thunders spoke. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Uh uh-uh, keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Makes you curious, doesn't it? Now, listen, some would assume, and logically so, that this mighty angel is Jesus, right? I saw a mighty angel coming down from heaven. He's surrounded by a cloud. He's got a rainbow over his head. His face shines like the sun. His feet are like pillar of fire, right? So it, it sounds like, well, that's Jesus. Well, there's a problem with that idea. Jesus is not any time referred to as an angel in the New Testament. If this is him, it's the first time he's referred to in that tense. Um, So it's not likely that it's Jesus. In fact, what's happening to Jesus in all of these scenes? All the angels are bowing down to him. He's not carrying uh, messages to the earth, to John. Every, all the angels. So there's a mighty angel coming to the earth. It's unlikely that it's him because the mighty angels are bowing down to him. So the question is, is it Michael? Is it the archangel? Uh, we're not sure. So it's really not the point. This holy angel holds an open scroll. And he has authority over land and sea. The scroll holds what? A word from God. So the scroll is clear. So you can get caught up on who he is and miss the point. This angel is a mighty angel. He has authority over the land and the sea. And he's carrying a word from God, a message from God. That's what he's got. That's what the scroll is. The angel shouts the word. He shouts it. But then John heard a voice from heaven telling him to not write it down. But seal it up. What was in the small scroll? Now, where are we in the story? We're between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Is it more terror? More woe, woe, woe? I don't know. In fact, let's just say it is not for man to know. John heard it, but John was not allowed to reveal it or write it down. Is that the first time that that kind of a thing ever happened? No, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul, this Paul's in the Revelation story, the Apostle Paul also revealed a time when he saw and heard things that he could not share either. So it was a a message that God wanted to communicate to John, and in this one, God wanted to communicate to Paul, but it's personal. And I don't want you to tell anybody. I just want it to be for you. Well, that'd be the first reason you'd want to tell everybody. So let's, let's go over to Paul. In in, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. Now, John could not reveal or write down the content of the small scroll 
But the same angel raises his hand toward heaven and gives a revelation that John did write down. So there is a part of this revelation that John can't tell us. But immediately following that, there's a, there's, uh, the angel says, okay, I do have a word for everyone. No more delay. Now you got to get this. It's in the gap. It's between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So if he says in the gap, no more delay, what's the seventh trumpet? The seventh trumpet is the announcement of the coming kingdom of Christ. No more delay. What's that mean? So let's go to verse five. And then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. And he said, there will be no more delay. Now, this is not the angel talking. This is the angel delivering the message of God. There will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, we're in the pause, right? There will be no more delay. The sixth is finished. There will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. A mysterious plan will be fulfilled. There will be no more delay. And so what happens when the seventh trumpet? There's an announcement that Jesus... Everything is his. All of it. It's mysterious. The heavenly host at some point did not all know this. But it has now been revealed, not just to humans, but to the heavenly assembly as well. We covered the seventh trumpet in the past session. No more delay. The king is coming and God's wrath and judgment are coming before him. To destroy those who brought destruction. So, I told you last week several times, can your mind comprehend how big the spirit war is? When I read to you from Daniel a few minutes ago to start tonight, millions attend to him, the ancient of days on the throne. And many millions surround him. And you can't see any of them. But they're there. It's a spiritual war. Do you understand? And we're going to get into it deeply tonight. That God's mysterious plan that is revealed in the seventh trumpet was a surprise to the adversaries in the spiritual war. Do you get that? They didn't know what he was going to do through the son Jesus until he did it and how that would be their own doom. Here's the second point. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. Okay. I'm going to get it. Okay. The mysterious plan of God will be fulfilled. No more delay. The revelation of Christ, the king, a conquering and reigning king. No more delay. In other words, if you've been waiting for the surprise, here it is. It's out of the bag. The the king is coming. It's going to be Jesus. It's all going to be his. 
Everything's over. That will be the end. That will be the end. No more guessing. The Apostle Paul gives us much detail about this mysterious plan of God that was once kept secret. And I'm, I'm going to try to make a point out of this, even though I know it's a difficult thing to understand. Satan didn't know. Satan didn't know. Do you think Satan knew that Jesus dying on the cross and going into the grave would be his defeat? If he'd have known that, would he have participated in it? He didn't know. He didn't know how God was going to use that to unseat him. Now, I don't have time to go into detail about that, but you, as I read this, I want to put three things together. There's a word from God between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. There's a third of the earth's population dying, and then Jesus is announced. But between there, no more delay. And what's the, what's the mysterious plan is revealed? Okay, what's the mysterious plan? Jesus is going to be king? Well, we know that because we're on this side. Do you think they all knew that back then? Do you think the heavenly host knew that back then? Okay, let's go look. Let's, let's go to the book of Ephesians, and I'm looking for what? What's the mysterious plan, and who knew about it in advance? What's going to be revealed in the seventh trumpet that was a surprise to anybody? Ephesians 3.1. When I think of all of this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me, the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. That's us in this room. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. Now, let me ask you a question. Was that before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ or after? After. Right? After. He didn't reveal anything to Paul before Jesus went to the cross. God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me, the apostle to the Gentiles, right? As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations. Are you listening? So they didn't know. God did not reveal how Jesus going to the cross, going to the grave, and resurrecting was going to take back dominion of the earth from Satan. They didn't know. They didn't know. You think Peter knew it? When Jesus told Peter he was going to the cross, what did Peter say? Oh, not on my watch. Right? Get behind me, Satan. They didn't know. They couldn't see how that was going to fix anything. Verse 5. <clears throat> God did not reveal it to previous generations. But now by his spirit, oh my, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. What? What's he revealing? This mysterious plan that earlier generations didn't know about. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. And if you don't say hallelujah, you're in the wrong class. 
God's children. Did you catch it? Who were God's children before? Israel. Who are God's children now? Anybody who believes in Jesus Christ. The mysterious plan is he was going to open up a way to God, to the whole world, to everybody. All of them. His dominion wouldn't just be in in Palestine or in Judea. His dominion wouldn't just be in the parameters over in the Middle East. His dominion would be of the whole earth. It's a mysterious plan. But you, both, excuse me, both um, God's children, both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. What's the good news? There's this mysterious plan that Jew and Gentile will both become the children of God by faith in Christ, and you will inherit everything that becomes his, and by the way, everything's his. That's it. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, Paul said, He graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasure available to them in Christ. Did you know you were rich? Endless treasure. I, Paul, was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. Satan didn't know. Those angels who fell in with Satan and were cast out of heaven, they didn't know. They didn't know. They would not have participated in the crucifixion if they'd known that that was what was going to unseat them and turn the kingdom over to Jesus. They didn't know. Verse 10, God's purpose in all this, you ready, was to use the church. To display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the whom. Who's the church going to show the mystery to? The unseen rulers. What? They didn't know. The unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Do you know that the church was designed by God to be the body of Christ that revealed the mystery of God to the angelic realm that fell away. The heavenly places, the unseen world. This is, you know, when I talk about a spirit war, do you see it? I want to read that again. That's so big, I could spend a week on it, but we'll try not to. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety of all of, to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, we got to do that while we're spreading the gospel to the people on the earth. This was the, his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. The Apostle John, so let's go back to Revelation. The Apostle John hears the voice from heaven again. No more delay, right? Now what? No more delay. Now what? So let's go back to verse 8. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. 
Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I, John, took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Why was it sweet? And why is it sour? Sweet salvation is being revealed. Sweet salvation, a word of life, a word of eternal life, a word of redemption, a word of salvation, a word that you don't have to die. That's a sweet word, right? But sour, why? Because all those in the angelic realm, that mysterious plan that's going to upset them, they're not going to just sit by and watch. They will oppose the church. You with me? It's a sweet salvation, but it's sour because there will be a spirit war opposition during our church time, during the time of waiting for our king to come. You're going to be in a war. There's going to be a spiritual war take place. But what's the message to John? What's the message? John must tell the world about God's coming wrath and judgment. If you don't hear anything I say tonight, I'm asking you to hear this. What did the angel tell John to do? Eat the scroll. But it, okay, it's sweet and it turns sour. But what did he say? Go back up and look at verse 11. You must prophesy again about many people, nation, languages, and kings. What's he prophesying? What, what, what is he going to tell them? Are you ready? There is a king that's coming. There's a kingdom that's coming with the king. And if you reject this king, you will be destroyed. Utterly annihilated. That's the message. You know what? The church in America has been so dumbed down. That's the only way I can even put it. That they cannot imagine the very essence of what that angel told John to preach. There's a king that's soon approaching. He's the seventh trumpet. And when he comes, he comes to make war. He carries the wrath of God. He's the third woe, the third woe, woe, woe. He's the third terror. Jesus is a terror? Yes! He's the terror that's coming out of heaven to make war on whom? His children? No, not only his children. He's making war on those who have denied him, rejected him, and followed after the adversary of God, the enemy of God. You must not hold back. You must tell them. Do you think if that was the calling of God to John, do you think it's the calling of God to the church? Yes. 
Does, do people want to hear that? No. No. Tell us something that makes us feel good. Well, I can tell you something that makes you feel good. Jesus can save you from the coming wrath. But if he doesn't save you from the coming wrath, he becomes the wrath. He becomes the wrath. Okay, two witnesses. Immediately following the sour scroll moment, the angel gives John a measuring stick. Verse 1, chapter 11. Again, we're still in the pause, right? Between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And then I was given a measuring stick and I was told, go and measure the temple of God. Now, don't read over that. Measure what? Measure the temple in Jerusalem. Go measure it. And the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer court for it has been turned over to the nations. And most translations would say it's been turned over to the Gentiles. They, the Gentiles, will trample the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. How long is that? That's three and a half years. Verse 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap, and they will prophesy during those 1260 days. How long is that? Same thing. It's three and a half years. So why are they in burlap, and why are they prophesying? Well, let's hold that thought, okay? In Luke 21, nine verses... Listen, nine verses before the verse I've started every session with. What, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear, right? That's how I've started every one of these sessions. Nine verses earlier, you read this. Luke 21, 24. They, he's talking about the Jews, will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. Well, this is the time of Jacob's trouble. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. Can you see Luke 21 and Revelation tying together? The time of the Gentiles, the, they will trample down Jerusalem. There's a time in which the Gentiles will have authority over Jerusalem and they'll trample it down. In other words, they'll, they'll run the place until the time of the Gentiles comes to an end. This scene that I just described reveals the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation. 42 months equals three and a half years. 1260 days is also three and a half years. This is not the Jerusalem temple that was there during the time of Christ. That temple would have been destroyed some 30 years earlier before John ever had the revelation. The Jerusalem temple was burnt to the ground, torn down by the Romans. That tells us that there must be another temple built in Jerusalem. Before these events can take place, there must be another temple built in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul reveals the Antichrist standing in the Jerusalem temple at the three and a half year point and proclaiming that he himself to be God, and he says it to the whole world. So my point is this, he's given a measuring uh, a stick or measuring rod, go measure the temple. Well, that temple is not the temple, Solomon's temple. That thing was gone before John ever had this revelation. So there's another temple coming to Jerusalem. And the apostle Paul says that when that temple comes, the Antichrist, it'll come 
during the time of Jacob's trouble. It'll come during the tribulation. You with me? During the seven years, it will come. And I'll show you in a minute where that comes from. Daniel reveals how all this begins. After, I'm convinced that this begins after the rapture of the church. Because the, the church is the one who is holding back the Antichrist. The church is the one holding back the destruction, which is the Antichrist himself. The, the church holds back the tribulation. Let's just put it plainly. The Antichrist will come to world power after the rapture. And somehow he, the Antichrist will fill the void of world leadership that occurs when the church is removed. And in his worldwide authority, he will sign a seven-year peace agreement with Israel, which will allow for the rebuilding of a Jerusalem temple. And let me put it like this, because a lot of people, you see the Antichrist and you see the tribulation. The tribulation is the kingdom of the Antichrist. It's his kingdom. He's in charge. You want to know what the kingdom looks like? Look at the tribulation. You want to see what it would be like to live under that king? Look at the tribulation. You want to see what it would be like to live under King Jesus? Look at the millennial kingdom. Seven years of horror, or a thousand years of the most, of a thousand years of like a Garden of Eden. No death, no, it just totally changes everything. So let's go back to Daniel. Where does it start? This tribulation. This, um, we need a temple, right? John, go measure the temple. Well, there's no temple. Lord, there's no temple. So how do you get a temple in Jerusalem? I mean, let's face it. The Muslims own that. They don't own it. Excuse me, I shouldn't say that. The Muslims control the Temple Mount. I've been there uh, the last trip, I, I walked around on Temple Mount, and it is controlled by the Muslims. I tried to go in the Dome of the Rock, the big gold top, and the guy said, no, 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 you don't come in here. So how do you get a temple up there? Something cataclysmic will have to happen. Something that transforms the earth. Do, do you think the rapture will transform the earth? When the light of the world is taken away? Daniel 9, 26. The ruler, he's the Antichrist, will make a treaty with the people, and that's Israel, for a period of one set of seven. That's seven years. But after half this time, that's three and a half years, he, the Antichrist, will put an end to sacrifices and offerings. Now, Listen, somebody will say, well, where do you get the temple out of that? The Jews will never do sacrifices and offerings outside of the temple. It would be against the law, the Jewish law. The only place they can do sacrifices and offerings would be in the Jerusalem temple, and there isn't one. You wonder why the Jews don't do animal sacrifices right now? There's no temple. If they had a temple, they'd be doing animal sacrifices. There's no temple. So what does the Antichrist do? He signs this peace agreement, but then halfway through, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offering. So evidently, this peace agreement allowed them to start, because you can't stop animal sacrifices if you never started animal sacrifices. So it had to have started, and now he's going to stop it. 
as a climax to all of his terrible deeds, the Antichrist, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Where's he going to put it at? It's in the temple. He's going he's to set something in the temple that will desecrate the temple. Some pagan idol. And I have an idea what that is, but I don't have time to go down that road tonight. But, um, but it will desecrate the temple. As a climax to all of his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. And what is that? He's the Antichrist. That the Lord will come. When Jesus comes, he takes him, snatches him, throws him into hell. The rebuilt temple will be desecrated by the Antichrist and destruction will come to the earth. It's interesting that the tribulation is measured in seven years. A lot of people seem to think that the first half of the tribulation, because he, the Antichrist brings this false peace to the world, that the first three and a half years are really not a problem. <sighs> I don't know what you call problems, but I call it a problem. I've read to you much of what will happen inside the first three and a half years. It's a problem. Now, does it get worse at the second half? Yes. But I'll tell you how much worse can worse get after the halfway point. During the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the Lord will place two witnesses in Jerusalem. That's verse 3 up above. Let's go all the way to the top of the page. It says, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they'll be clothed in burlap and prophesied during the 1260 days. Which 1260 days? The first 1260 days. Not the second half, but the first half. They will be clothed in burlap. What's it mean? What, in the Old Testament, what did burlap mean? It, it meant repentance and mourning. Why are they repentant and why are they mourning? They know what's coming. The church has been taken away at this point, and now the Lord will have two witnesses. These two witnesses reveal the mysterious plan of God to the Jewish people. Now, I spent a lot of time earlier on this mysterious plan. I'm going to do one more time. Here we go. Satan didn't know. So then the church, which as of right now, had 2,000 years, okay? We've got about 2,000 years of the church age, right? The church was supposed to reveal the mysterious plan to the heavenly host, Christ in me. Christ in me is the mysterious plan. Christ in me makes me a son of God, displacing the heavenly realm that might think they're the sons of God. They'll be replaced by Jesus's brothers and sisters, But what happens when the church is gone? And the veil is over the Jewish people. Who will tell the Jews the mysterious plan? The two witnesses. Why are they here? They will tell the mysterious plan of God to the Jewish people. What is it? Jesus is Messiah. And he is the seventh trumpet. He is the Jewish Messiah. And he is the approach, soon approaching king. And he's going to establish an eternal kingdom. And you must come in under him quickly because there won't be a lot of time. So let's go to Revelation 11, verse 4. And we're going to get into these two witnesses. 
He said, these two prophets, this is two witnesses, these two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, where are they at? By the way, they are specifically in Jerusalem and they are specifically revealing the mysterious plan to whom? The Jewish people in Jerusalem, okay? And if anybody, anyone tries to harm these two witnesses, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. So if it's looking cloudy and they want to go out and preach today, they can just shut it off. Right? And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans fresh and salt water into blood. And they have the power to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. They, God gave them that power, that discernment, that ability to distribute these, these terrible things upon the earth. Why, Why are they terrible? Well, there's no rain. They're already in the tribulation and now it's not gonna rain and now there's what? The, the, the waters turn to blood and now there's plagues on top of everything else. No one knows for sure. Who are they? Everybody wants to know who they are. Let's just be, start by saying no one knows for sure. But it is hard to argue with the idea that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. And again, maybe you think it's Moses and Enoch, and that's okay. I'm not going to argue with you. We'll figure it out one day. Moses. Why, but I want you to understand why a lot of people would say Moses and Elijah. Because it just really... Does it matter? No, it, it, it might be two people that nobody knows who they are. It, it's not about the witnesses. It's about what they're called to do is the issue. But let's just assume they're Moses and Elijah. Why would people say that? Moses is the lawgiver. Elijah represents the prophets, the law and the prophets. And who are they going to be talking to? The Jewish people who know what? They know the law and they know the prophets, right? So it's kind of this logical thing that the Moses, the law, uh, Elijah, the prophet, would have the best way to communicate with the Jewish people during the tribulation. Um, some people say it's Enoch. Why do they say it's Enoch? You know, because Enoch never died. So it's Enoch and Elijah because those two guys never died. Moses died up on Mount Pisgah, right? right? Their message is to the Jewish people. They understand the law and the prophets, but they do not yet know about this mysterious plan of Yeshua Messiah. They don't know about Jesus the Christ, right? So Elijah and Moses both possessed these same powers during their time on the earth. Moses and Elijah were both standing with Jesus during the, during the transfiguration, right? So there's a lot of people that say, well, Moses did the things that he talks about doing in the tribulation. He did them in Egypt. So surely he's one of them. There is a, there's a heavenly, so, so here's the Moses argument. Well, but Moses died. So if Moses died, it's a flawed argument. So I need to say that before. Somebody will say to me, but Moses died. So it's got to be Elijah and Enoch because they never died. And I'm thinking, did you ever hear of the resurrection? <laughs> but that's kind of a sideline. But anyway, so 
Enoch didn't die. Elijah didn't die. So there's this, there's a heavenly argument, and it's recorded in the scripture about the body of Moses, right? About what happened to his body. So why do you think they're arguing about the body of Moses? Maybe they were arguing about the two witnesses too. So let's go to the New Testament, book of Jude, 1 verse 9. And it says, but even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael's saying, I don't have the authority to rebuke you. He does. So Michael didn't get into it. But here he says, this took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. Why are they arguing about Moses' body? Because there's a mystery in there too. Now, you know what clinches it for me? If you're worried about Moses being dead so he couldn't possibly want to be one of the two witnesses, you've got a real problem with the transfiguration. Because he's not a dead guy standing with Jesus on the mountain. He's a live guy standing with Elijah next to Jesus on the mountain. The main point is not their identity, but their message. What's their message? They will preach Jesus as Messiah to the Jews in Jerusalem during the reign of the Antichrist. And what do you think the Antichrist is going to do while they're preaching? He's going to do everything he can to stop them. Why? Because he is coming to destroy Israel. He's coming to destroy the Jewish people. This will bring great persecution upon the two witnesses, and eventually the Antichrist will kill them. The beast from the bottomless pit, we're going to read the next verse, is the Antichrist that will be reigning on the earth at that time. He is the one that brings destruction. Verse 7, when they, the two witnesses, complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against the two witnesses. And he will conquer them and he will kill them. Interesting, isn't it? And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where the Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies, their corpses. And no one will be allowed to bury their dead bodies. All the people who belong to this world, notice the phrase, belong to this world, will gloat over the two witnesses and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. How did they torment them? They shut the rain. No, it's not going to rain. They, they turned the water into blood, right? So they tormented them. The beast and his followers will celebrate the death of these two preachers with a Christmas time celebration and they'll exchange gifts like your family does at Christmas. Why? Because these two horrible preachers have finally quit preaching. But horror, and I use the word specifically, will come upon them when they, when they rise from the dead, when those two witnesses rise from the dead in full view of the whole world 
watching. I want you to notice something. It says specifically that the world will stare at their dead bodies and celebrate. So while they're, while they're staring and celebrating and exchanging gifts, they start breathing again. You're talking about ruining your little party. Why? Why? I got goosebumps on my arms. You know why? Because in that moment they will realize the breath of life does not belong to the beast. The breath of life belongs to the one that is breathing life into the two witnesses. That would be a terrible thought in that moment. Think about that scene. You know, could that have been accomplished before satellite television? Could the whole world have watched that at one time? You know, I could see everybody exchanging gifts and everybody's got their cell phones out watching this thing. All right? Revelation 11, 11. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them. And they stood up in terror, struck all who were staring at them. And then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here. <laughs> and they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. They see it. And there's going to be, people ask me, do you think the unbelieving world's going to see Christians when they're raptured? My answer is no. I do not think they will see us go up into the clouds. It will happen in a flash, in the blink of an eye. You, it will happen so quickly, you would, if you could see it, you couldn't see it because it's too fast. But in this rapture event, they will watch it. They will see it. They will preach, these witnesses will preach Jesus as Messiah from Jerusalem for three and a half years. And they will lie dead for three and a half days. And then rise, raptured to receive the reward. The bitter scroll will become sweet to them on that day. What's the bitter scroll? The word that makes you sour in your stomach because they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Now here's, a, here's an interesting question. They cannot die until their mission is completed. They cannot die. So do you think the Antichrist says, well, let's just wait till three and a half, let's wait three and a half years and then we'll kill him. No, he would like to kill them up front. He would like to kill them whenever he would like to kill them. It's the first time he hears them preach. But he can't. They cannot die until their mission is completed. But their lives give testimony to the resurrection power of Jesus. The whole world will see the resurrection power of Jesus. And here's why I make a point of that. So let me ask all of you, do you believe this applies to the children of God today? Let me make it personal. I believe that I am called by God. Not, not, it doesn't make me special. I just think that God, God's called me. God's called all the children of God to be his children. You didn't call him. He called you. And I believe that my days have already been established. And listen, if you disagree with me, fine. That's okay. Just don't do it out loud. I don't think I can die until I finish my assignment. Now, listen, I, I'm not going to go out here and jump in front of a truck and say, I'm not going to test God. I'm not a fool. 
He owns me. I'm a blood-bought child of God. He has established my days. So we read these two witnesses, and they lived three and a half years, and everybody's trying to kill them. Everybody hates them, but they can't die. But at the appointed time, they do die. You know why? Because they're finished. And the church, you know, there be, there's been generations that have read the same material, and they had a mission. And when their mission was over, they died. And then you know what he says after that? Come up here. And I say, yes, Lord. I'd be happy to come up there. Kind of changes how you look at life. Let's go to verse 13. At the same time, what's, what's happening? They, they've been raptured up, okay? The two witnesses have been raptured up. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror, this is when it makes you cold chills. The second terror, that's the sixth trumpet, is past. But look, the third terror is coming quickly. What's the third terror? I told you, we're between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. The third, the second terror has passed. What? That was the four angels from the Euphrates killing a third of the earth's population. But the, the third terror is quickly coming. And what's the third terror? The king is approaching and he's going to make war on the inhabitants of the earth. That's a terror. It is if you don't belong to him. Yeah, it is. Justice. Many of the people who celebrated and exchanged gifts at the death of the two witnesses will be among the 7,000 who died during the earthquake that will occur during their resurrection. Did you get that? So they were just exchanging gifts, and it says, at the same time, immediately following the, the resurrection, the, they're exchanging gifts and having a party, and then the earthquakes and kills many of those people having the party. 7,000 of them. This parenthesis, this pause event, is between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, with we, which we've already covered. The parenthesis continues in chapter 12 with the woman and the dragon. The woman and the dragon. Chapter 12, verse 1. We're still in the parentheses before the seventh trumpet. And then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. And I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out because of her labor pains and an agony from giving birth. Notice how this vision from heaven lines up with Joseph's dream in the Old Testament. And if you studied anything about Joseph, Joseph is, is a shadow of the coming Messiah. Well, let me give you a hint. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Jesus was rejected by his brothers, the Jewish people. And he was falsely accused. Jesus is falsely accused. But Joseph is falsely accused and yet rises to the number two position. Jesus is falsely accused. Potiphar's wife goes to jail, but rises to the right hand of the Father. Right? So many parallels in that. But what I want you to notice is 37 verse 9, Genesis. Joseph had these dreams, right? 
And again, he told his brothers and sisters, or brothers, excuse me, about this. Listen, I've had another dream. He said, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed low before me. What's, who's bowing down to Joseph? His brothers and, and his family is bowing down to him. Um, there's, this plan didn't just take place after the fact. Jacob is Israel. Okay, so this story of Joseph and his brothers and these parallels are all announcing a future, um, the, the future person of Christ himself. So let me give you the, the keys that unlock this scripture. The woman in the story I'm about to read is Israel. She is not the church. The dragon, that's easy, is Satan. The child that the woman is birthing is Jesus. The archangel is Michael. Israel is the remnant seed of the woman. The beast out of the sea is the Antichrist. And the false prophet is the religious leader that will assist the Antichrist during the tribulation. Now, if you'll take all of those keys and insert them in this text, verse 3 through 6. And then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon, Satan with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky. Who are the stars in the sky swept away by his tail? They are the angels that joined in the rebellion. They are the used-to-be sons of God. That's part of the mystery. I don't have time to go into that. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman, the dragon, Satan, stood in front of the woman, Israel, as she was about to give birth to whom? The Messiah. Ready to devour her baby, Jesus, as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Somebody say hallelujah. Her child was snatched away. So this dragon's, ready, this, this dragon's ready to eat the baby. So what? Why does he care that she's going to have a baby? Because the baby's going to rule the earth. And who's ruling the earth? The dragon. So he's got to get rid of the competition, right? And her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. Part of the mysterious plan, by the way. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Israel fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for how long? Three and a half years. There's a lot of three and a half years is in there, isn't it? The red dragon is Satan. And he led one third of the angels of heaven into rebellion against God. This is the spirit war. This, these are the false gods of the Old Testament. This is the essence of idolatry, to follow someone other than the one true God. The spirit of Antichrist is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It begins the moment the woman gives birth to Christ. You don't need an Antichrist until you have the Christ. The dragon attempted to destroy Jesus on the cross. I said it earlier, Satan did not know God's mysterious plan to create a new group of people called the children of God. He didn't know. 
The dragon attempted to destroy Jesus on the cross. He participated. He entered into Judas. He was part of the conniving plan. But he had no idea that his plan, he was being duped. He was actually working into the very plan of God himself. But Jesus ascended to the Father's throne. And he awaits for the day that his divine kingdom will come to the earth. By the way, that's the announcement of the seventh trumpet. What about those who came to faith in Christ at the preaching of the two witnesses? So let's review. What about those who came to faith in Christ at the preaching of the two witnesses? Who are these that are protected for 1260 days, three and a half years? Who are they? They are the remnant, the remnant of Israel that God will supernaturally protect from the dragon during the tribulation. Verse Uh, Verse 7 pauses with the woman and her child event and focuses on the dragon. So I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But for three and a half years, there will be a remnant that will be taken out and protected supernaturally by God. The dragon won't be able to kill them. So let's go look at the dragon, verse 7. And then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. Did you know the dragon had angels? Huh? And the dragon lost the battle and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. The great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to the earth with his angels. And then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in heaven rejoice. Why is there rejoicing in heaven? Because they have drop kicked him out of there. But terror will come to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing he has little time. Why does it mean he has little time? Because by the time this occurs, do you think Satan can read? The seven-year tribulation has been revealed, knowing he has little time. Can your mind imagine the spirit war in heaven, and yes, even right now on the earth today? I realize it's difficult for us to put a timeline on all of these events. Does his thrown down from heaven event take place in the future tribulation? Or does it refer to the past events? When was he thrown down from heaven? How much, how much access does he have to heaven now? Is there a point where he will not be able to access heaven anymore? So Jesus makes an announcement in Luke 10, 17. He says, when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to Jesus, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, Jesus told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Is that a past event, a present event, a future event? It seems to me that Satan has access. I'm I'm using this carefully. It seems to me that Satan has access to the throne of God until the tribulation begins. Then he will be thrown down to heaven, thrown down, um, thrown down from heaven, and unable to approach the throne again. 
just my opinion based on he, the terror. Woe to you, inhabitants of the earth, for he is filled with rage, for he knows his days are short. The power to overcome Satan is the issue. Whether he is, has access to God or no longer has access to God, he still has power until Jesus assumes authority here. Do you understand? That's really the issue. So how did they overcome him? Did you notice how plain it was? The power to overcome Satan is revealed in this revelation. The blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they weren't afraid to die. Do you think that affects us? Why would you not be afraid to die? Do you believe in the resurrection? Yeah, I do for everybody but me. Do you believe in the resurrection? Now back to the woman and the child. This will be our wrap up. The woman and the child. Israel, the time of Jacob's trouble. Verse 13, when the dragon realized he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had been given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon. For guess what? Time times and half a time. Time one, times two, one year, two year, half a time. Add those together, you got three and a half years. The Jewish remnant saved and supernaturally protected by God during the second half of the tribulation. Romans 9, 27. This is Paul's announcement. And, co and concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sands of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And let's read from the Old Testament about this. Awake, Zechariah 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, the man who is my partner, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn against the lambs. Two-thirds of the people in the land, two-thirds of the people in Israel will be cut off and die, says the Lord. But one-third will be left in the land and I will bring that group through the fire and I will make them pure and I will refine them like silver and purify them like gold and they will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say these are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. Those are the remnant of Israel. With that final thought tonight, one-third of Israel will survive and two-thirds of Israel will be cut off and die. How do you see the gospel message to the Gentile church tonight? Two-thirds of Israel will not make it in that scene. Only one-third. Church, today, does everybody that goes to church going to make it? You know who's going to make it? The children of God. And there's a, there's, here's the closing. It's Hebrews 2 verse 1. Church, listen. So we must listen very carefully to the truth. I'm going to hold it up. Everything tonight is from here. We must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard. Or we, like Israel, we might drift away from it. 
For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished by God. So what makes us, church, right, right now, so what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? John would be the example. That's what we're reading from. And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. What makes us today think we can escape? You survive by the blood of the Lamb. That's it. You won't survive apart from the blood of the Lamb. By a word of your testimony. What's your testimony? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I say it always. I say it openly. I'm not ashamed. I tell everybody that I meet. I, I, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, right? They overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by word of their testimony. And what's the third thing? You're not afraid to die because you believe the resurrection. I'm going to pray, and we're going to close. And as in the earlier sessions, I'm going to stay up here. And if uh, somebody, maybe there's somebody here tonight. When I ask you, maybe the blood of the Lamb is not covering you. And maybe tonight you're in this room and you cannot say with, without a shadow of a doubt that you are a blood-bought child of God. You could change that in a moment. You can be born again by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Yes, you can. You can. What makes you think you're going to escape without the blood of the Lamb? What, thinks you're, what makes you think you can escape without your testimony that Jesus is the Christ? Father, I thank you for your word that you, you opened up this window of opportunity for the Gentile world. For 2,000 years, the church has had an invitation to come and become the children of God. Children not born of a natural descent. Lord, if it was by natural descent, we wouldn't have made it. But you opened up by faith that we could come and escape these coming horrors and be called the children of God and share in this eternal inheritance that belongs to your son. So, Father, tonight, for I pray for your Holy Spirit to move in this place. And if there's anybody here tonight, any person here tonight, whether it's one or whether it's 50, that does not know you as Messiah and Savior, Lord, they would tonight be born again, born of the water, born of the Spirit, confessing you as Lord and Savior and the Son of God, becoming the children of God. We honor you. We give you thanks. We wait for your coming like a watchman waits for the morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.